Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There are little frivolous things that we've lost in 2020 that many of us miss. And then there are serious things that make us ashamed to even complain about the frivolous things. But there's a place where the frivolous and the serious intersect. Actually, many, many places. It was a tsunami slam. There's been nothing like this for the industry. Remember, the industry had seemed almost super. Elizabeth Becker is a former international economics correspondent for The New York Times. It had survived the 2008 crash since 1995 when it started exploding with globalization. The global tourism industry seemed indestructible. So, so much of the economy that was built around it, like a a reef, so to speak, they were shocked. Becker now writes about travel, and she's the author of Overbooked, the Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. And she notes, tourism is both that fun trip that you are hoping to take, maybe to the Grand Canyon or Paris or New Orleans, and it's the lifeblood of lots of states, cities, and countries. So 20% of the economy of, for the states like Nevada and Hawaii, all tourism related. So yes, it's, it's, you think it's your neighborhood restaurant, but how much of it was depending on tourists? So it's been, it's been um, awful. In my first interviews in March and April, Roger Dow, who's the head of the, the sort of the tourism industry for the United States, thought, oh, well, by, by summer, we'll be looking up. It just caught everybody by shock. Last year, the Department of Commerce reported that about 8 million Americans were directly employed by the travel and tourism sector. But as Elizabeth Becker suggests, the ripples are enormous. Travel is not just airline flights or hotel rooms. It's steak dinners and souvenir trinkets and ice cream cones. It's that special shirt or that pair of earrings that you bought because, you know, you were on vacation and it was time to live a little. Worldwide, it's estimated that more than 330 million people have jobs supported by tourism. So when people start traveling again, when you finally get to go on that vacation that you sadly canceled, there's going to be a big question hanging over everything. What's left? And that's where governments come in and what kind of subsidies are going to be around. In recent months, as Congress has found itself unable to agree on a relief package, there hasn't been a whole lot of money to prop up struggling hotels or restaurants or cruise lines, which means we could be barreling towards a strange future, a future in which, at some point, people do want to travel again. But the things that they want to do, the places they want to stay or eat, they have frequently evaporated. Unless, of course, the pandemic has somehow changed us long term and made us more inclined to stay home. Based on research that we have done in the U.S., in Europe, in Asia and elsewhere, we believe that there is strong, strong, strong consumer demand to travel again. Henry Hardeveld is a travel industry analyst and the president of Atmosphere Research Group. For example, 84% or more of the people in these surveys agree with the statement, I can't wait to start traveling again. The desire to travel has not gone away. Hardeveld says demand will build back slowly, with the travel industry continuing to stress cleanliness and all sorts of increased precautions, from fancy air filtration systems to mandatory masks. 
and wealthy people are going to have the upper hand if hotel rooms cost more because, frankly, so many hotels have shuttered, and if airline seats cost more because so many planes have been mothballed over the past several months when passenger traffic was down. But, Hardevelt says, the number one most difficult hurdle for the travel industry to surmount may, in the end, be economic insecurity. What's really interesting about the traveler in the U.S. is the average household income in in 2019, based on our research for a leisure traveler household income, was around $95,000 a year. Now, that is certainly far above the national average. But in the research that we have done this year during the pandemic, that has fallen to $88,000 a year, still far above the national average but down substantially from 2019. And our research shows that a critical mass of U.S. airline passengers have lost their jobs. And of those who have not lost their jobs, more than one in five say they are earning less money now than they were before the pandemic began. Hardebelt says the uptick in travel by car is for some people because of safety concerns. For others, it's an issue of money. They just cannot afford the plane ticket anymore. And ironically, much of that economic pain stems from the deterioration of the travel industry itself. It is such a giant driver of jobs that when it's crippled, it eats into demand for its own product. We have seen, I think, more than 100,000 employees of airlines just in the U.S., either lose their jobs outright or go on some kind of furlough or voluntary unpaid leave of absence. The number of lost jobs right now exceeds the pre-pandemic employment of American Airlines combined with Alaska Airlines. So that's roughly 130,000 or so jobs, 130, 140,000 jobs just between those two airlines. So it'd be as if they had laid off every single person. That's like, that's correct. That, that's where we, okay. that is correct. Okay. And then that's just the airlines themselves. The ripple effect is even greater. Uh, approximately a third of hotels are likely to close as a result of the pandemic. So there's a loss of employees there. We talked about the restaurants and you mentioned New Orleans and I'm a very proud graduate of Tulane University. New Orleans is a very tourism dependent city. The you know restaurants there, many of the locally, locally owned restaurants there have closed. Locally owned restaurants in New York, in San Francisco, everywhere across the country are at risk of closing. And I, I read an article that the restaurant industry is hoping that the Biden administration will provide as much as $120 billion of financial aid and relief to the restaurant industry uh, uh, when, when they take over to help get restaurants back up on their feet. Convention centers are closed. Um, the shops that are tourism reliant are not seeing the business if they're even allowed, of course, to be open. So the ripple effect from travel and tourism is massive. It's many, many billions of dollars more than just the direct spending on airfare, hotel rooms, rental cars, car sharing, etc. Again, it's not just going to all recover overnight. Travel and tourism worldwide is responsible for 
something like 7% or more of, of GDP. And as Elizabeth mentioned, there are some states where travel and tourism account for 20%, perhaps even more of the state-level GDP. So, uh, you know, yes, travel is fun, but travel and tourism is a big job creator, a big revenue creator, a big tax revenue creator. So uh, let me ask both of you this. Um, Henry, I'll start with you. Aren't we then describing a mismatch? You said right at the beginning, like, boy, there's, you know, surveys show there's a lot of pent up demand. People really want to travel. Now, granted, not everybody will be able to travel because of money, but there's a lot of interest, a lot of people who've put off trips and and weren't able to go on them and and are sick of, frankly, being in their house all the time. Um, But if you're also saying, well, well, all these restaurants are closing, all these hotels are closing, when things come back, isn't there going to be a huge mismatch? Where are people going to stay and where are they going to eat? Oh, that's a very fair question to, to ask. Now, the hope is that with hotels, for example, that an investor or a financial group that sees an opportunity will buy and reopen a closed hotel. It's basically a real estate game. But then they have to hire the people to to work there from the front desk to housekeeping to restaurants to back of house functions and, and so on. In some cases, maybe you're bringing back people. But if those folks are really, really talented, they may have decided when they lost their job to go work elsewhere and whether they are available to return or not, whether they want to return or not is unknown. With an airline, you don't just snap your fingers and say, okay, poof, we're going back to 100% flying again. You have to make sure that your aircraft are maintained, that pilots are trained, that flight attendants are trained, and so on. That will happen in waves. It doesn't happen with uh, just one decision to bring hundreds of parked airplanes for just one airline back into service overnight. So there probably will be a bit of a mismatch. But I think what will be good about this is that the consumer is not just going to say overnight, okay, we've got 300 million people who all want to go away, regardless of where, and they want to start flying again, or driving to their nearby resort town or driving to go skiing or to a beach or whatever it may be. It's going to build up in waves as well. And look, the travel industry is one of the best when it comes to pricing. If demand exceeds supply, airfares, hotel room rates, rental car rates, etc., those all go up. And and that serves as a natural gating process, if you will, to to almost temper demand. What we don't know, Cara, is, and this is very important, what will the state of recovery for business travel be? These are the people who drive the majority of revenue and profits for the industry. As leisure travelers, what we choose to do is our own decision-making. It's our own money. But as business people, we may be subject to corporate policies that restrict or allow us to travel, budgets, etc. That part will recover on a slower pace than leisure and in a way that's good for the leisure travelers because it means that the travel industry will continue to be more focused short-term on leisure travelers and therefore more probably price-focused, value-focused, than if the business travelers decided overnight to all uh, start hitting the road again. I, I want to get back to the issue of business travel, but Elizabeth, let me get you in on um, the question of, I mean, are we going to 
be in six months or in a year in a place where you know traveling is is costly because a lot of people want to do it and a lot of hotels and and restaurants frankly are just not open for business anymore well, we've already seen during the pandemic that, um, you know, private airplanes, the the wealthy have um, been traveling. Really? And, um, yeah, it's up 70%. The wealthy have been traveling when they, you know, when you have the visa and that sort of thing. But so the the high, high end is up, uh, up like 70%. And what I want to say um, here about what we're going to see as the, the economy opens up and travel starts to recover I think this is a good window now to put in a third actor here, not just the consumer and the industry, but uh, what I'd call the community. The United States is one of the few countries that doesn't have a Department of Tourism or a tourism office. That was um, got rid of in 1996 with the Republican former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, arguing that government should have nothing to do with tourism which on the face of it, I argue that government is at the heart of tourism. Government decides which airports are going to be expanded, uh, which highways are going to be built, which visas are going to be passed, how much you're going to give to the national parks and tourism and the cultural, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm hoping that the Biden administration jumps in with, if not a revived Department of Tourism, at least a, a way to coordinate this, because What's gone unmentioned so far in our conversation is that before the pandemic, one of the biggest problems was over-tourism. That there was there so many civic groups and environmental groups have grown up to complain that tourism was so unregulated that destinations from Key West to Barcelona were being um, overrun. The city, the citizens didn't like it. And um, that is going to be, for me, one of the most interesting um, aspects to look at it. Will civic groups get together with environmentalists and very much the local people who've complained this so much and do something about it? Um, just recently in our presidential elections, our big national elections on the 3rd of November, um, an interesting thing happened in Key West, which was one of the big stops for cruise ships. You know, Florida is the headquarters for two-thirds of the cruise ships. And the citizens, you know, you know, laid back Margaritaville, Key West, <laughs> they, uh, they had three um, items on the ballot. And all three passed, one with 81%, saying enough of big cruise ships. We don't want any more docked here. We only want small cruise ships, and those small cruise ships have to have a clean environmental record. And this was put on the ballot by a local group that said, we want our um, clean water back, we want our way of life back, and we want to support local businesses because too much of cruise industry stuff does not really help locals. So that that really struck me a lot because I think local destinations are seeing this window of opportunity. You saw that in Milan, of all places, where they said, okay, the pandemic means we don't have tourists. We're going to block off the center of the city. No more cars, no right. more tour buses, so on and so forth. And um, other places are saying, enough of illegal Airbnb. We're going to stop it. And we're going to use the pandemic period to figure out how to control this again. So that's that will affect that 
basic question you raise about mismatch. Will this be a time where all kinds of things are being reexamined to figure out how best to travel, both for the traveler and the places they visit? Let's take a quick break here. I do want to, though, come back to this topic of um, how travel may change going forward. You're listening to Innovation Hub. We're looking at the future of travel, how and where and whether people are going to want a vacation. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Becker. She's the author of Overbooked, and she's joining us from Washington, D.C. And Henry Hartveld, he's a travel industry analyst and the president of Atmosphere Research Group. He's with us from San Francisco. If you want to catch this whole conversation or subscribe to our podcast, we are on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. Miller. For many of us, the inability to travel during the pandemic, to see the people we care about, the places we care about, it's been a huge loss. And Henry Hartveld, who's a travel industry analyst, says that people really, really want to get back out. He notes that in surveys, more than 80% of people report they can't wait to travel again. But... What may affect people's willingness to travel when it becomes safe are things such as uh, the state of their economies. Um, Are they working or not? Do they have the savings available to travel? Uh, And of course, where do they want to go? And uh, what will airfares be like? What will hotel costs or other lodging costs be? And so on. And those are big questions in an industry that's now a shadow of its former self, with millions of jobs lost. It is a 1.6 trillion, that's trillion dollar industry in the United States. And I don't think people realize that it was the glue of so much of their lives that tourism fit. So it's, it's tough. It's very tough. In fact, once travel picks up again, says travel expert Elizabeth Becker, slim supplies of things like hotel rooms are going to reshape what's available to travelers and will favor the wealthy. So that will very much affect whether you can afford to travel and, and where you can afford to travel. So I think it's, it's going to very much distort the market for quite a while. And um, you'll see as much as, as, as the pent-up demand is there, there'll be a bit more chaos in the, in the market that one would want. But Becker, who's the author of Overbooked, The Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism, notes that changes in attitudes towards travel itself have been quietly underway during the pandemic. As painful as it's been to see visitors disappear, some places have realized that the environmental impact has been shockingly positive. In northern India, as Becker recently wrote in Foreign Policy magazine, the Himalayas were visible again. Without tourists crowding the seashores, turtles returned to hatch on sandy beaches from Florida to Brazil. In Malaysia, otters were back in lakes. She writes that in Thailand, fish and marine mammals multiplied. California shores saw more whales than usual. All of which is great, 
But that flourishing of wildlife has also come with lots of joblessness and lots of people relying on food pantries. Becker says we can do a better job post-pandemic of balancing tourism with care for the environment. The country that everybody always brings up is Costa Rica, which invented ecotourism and a huge percentage of their economy rests on tourism. And yet it has one of the best records for preserving species and um, clean air, et cetera, and the strongest middle class in the region of, of Central America. So it's hard. It's hard work. Henry Hardeveld says there are signs that all around the world, environmental impact is becoming an increasingly important consideration. In Europe, I think that the uh, uh, social pressure to not fly uh, will continue. Uh, But a lot of people have already realized in a way that they don't need to, don't want to necessarily travel as much, perhaps as they did. The over-tourism that Elizabeth uh, mentioned a few moments ago is very, very real. And uh, uh, especially younger travelers, travelers under the age of 40, and even more so if they're under the age of 25, are keenly aware of the environmental impact of travel and tourism. But so are older travelers. Travelers over the age of 65 uh, are also keenly aware of, of this. Nobody wants to see something that they like, something that they love, be destroyed in the name of tourism. But what they do want to do is make sure that there is a way to access it uh, when and as they can in a responsible manner. Uh, The airlines, for example, have remained committed to using biofuels. I believe this is something that the Biden administration will support from a government standpoint, uh, whether it's through subsidies for development of these fuels or subsidies to make them more affordable to airlines. There's a lot of social pressure on hotels Uh, and resorts to be more environmentally responsible. I think that will continue throughout all parts of the travel and tourism industry. Does that mean to you people are going to be taking fewer trips? Like, let's say three, four years in the future, when when COVID is not something people are concerned about, people are going to be taking fewer trips. You've got all these low-cost airlines in Europe, but people are not going to be flying on them. People are not going to be going to Venice. Just sketch out for me, are we just going to see a real pivot from what we've seen? I think we are going to be more thoughtful about the trips we take. There are going to be some people who travel as much, perhaps even more often, post-COVID than we saw pre-COVID. And that will be a function of where do they live? How much money do they make? What is their savings Mm -hmm. like? What's the access to affordable transportation? What do they enjoy doing? And so on. But I think people will be far more conscious of factors such as CO2 emissions and the environmental impact of the trip they take. Some airlines have announced partnerships with uh, organizations that will sell uh, carbon offsets uh, so that you are able to buy these offsets to make up for the emissions that your your seat, if you will, your flight is uh, creating. Will it be 100% perfect? Will it be a true kumbaya moment? Absolutely not. Will it be better than it was before the pandemic? I certainly hope so, and I believe that it will be, especially as younger generations come of age 
and are making their own travel decisions. I think that while they certainly will look at the fundamentals, such as a hotel's location and its room rate, they will be looking at corporate social responsibility factors, including environmental responsibility as well. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Henry Hartveld. He's a travel industry analyst and the president of Atmosphere Research Group. I'm also speaking with Elizabeth Becker. She's the author of Overbooked and a former international economics correspondent for The New York Times. Elizabeth, I, I wonder if you've given any thought to the mechanics of how in the next, I don't know whether it's six months, nine months, three months, a year, whatever, countries are going to start opening back up because, boy, borders have been closed for a long time. I don't know when the last time anything like this happened was in terms of the closing of the borders. But I mean, what does it take? You know, is it going to take you showing like that I've been vaccinated to to, to take a trip to London? Is that what it's going to take? The last time we had so many closed borders was during the Cold War. It's that long ago. And I would be shocked if you did not have that kind of medical um, requirement. Um, I'm old enough that I certainly remember having my yellow um, booklet with all of my vaccinations that I had to show when I go when I went abroad. Um, and there'll be something similar. Yes, no question. And you know, wh- where will the United States passport be respected even with those um, COVID test uh, negative? Because countries will decide on a national basis, on a regional basis, as they are, as they do now, and it's back and forth, back and forth. So um, there's no question I think there'll be medical requirements. Um, We'd be foolish not to think that. And I don't know if countries will remain wedded to the idea of bubbles that you can only travel within the bubble between New Zealand and and Australia or Uh Singapore and Hong Kong. Uh But yeah, be prepared for that. And that's going to be for a while because we may think we're vaccinated. What country are we going to go to where it's going to be vaccinated and will they accept us? There are a lot of question marks. But I wanted to add one thing to what, what Henry described so sure. well. And that's that um, as people start to travel again, I agree wholeheartedly that they're going to be taking fewer trips. But I think they're going to be longer. I think that in the responsible tourism mode that he talked about, people who are going to not have the frenzied, I'm going to be here for three days or four days and I want to see everything. They're going to take fewer trips and they're going to be longer. And they're going to be looking as well for different transportation options. And I think this is where the United States has some thinking to do because really it's the car or the airplane. Our train, our our passenger train system is you know, the Northeast Corridor, essentially, and a few lines across the country. And our Greyhound bus system, our bus system, which used to be one little town to another, is now on just on the superhighways, largely. So the United States, as it's supposedly one of these years, is going to have um, a look, look again at the stru- transportation structure. I think they have to look at that particular issue because that solves two of the issues that we were talking about. I have to ask, though, you know, if if what we're talking about in terms of people taking longer vacations post-pandemic than they did before is an awareness of the environment and caring about that as an issue, I understand that some people do care about it. But I think a lot of people have very limited amount of time to go on vacation. 
they don't necessarily have a week or, or longer to do something and they may not feel that they have the money to stay in a hotel all that time or to be away all that time. So I wonder if, yes, that's a segment of the population takes the longer trips and is aware and thinks that way. And other people are, are not necessarily like the environment is not their highest concern when they're traveling. Well, if you look at it from an economic point of view, if you take a lot of short trips, you're spending much more money on airplanes. From an economic point of view, if you have a longer stay, generally you can get a better lodging deal. You don't have to stay at an expensive hotel. So I think economically it's not the killer, but you're absolutely right about the amount of time people have for vacation. And there again, the United States is the one, one of the few countries that does not um, uh, have a, a federally guaranteed mandatory two-week vacation time. We have no federal certified vacation time. So businesses can decide how much vacation you can have. So that's, that's another, another issue, um, whereas the rest of the world does have much more vacation time. And um, voila. Right. So, Kara, if, if I may yeah, add, add to that, uh, first to, to Elizabeth's point about rail, uh, I'm a big advocate for the development of high-speed rail because it is a far more efficient way to move people on short to medium uh, distances. And if you look in China, in Europe, Japan, uh, where high-speed rail has proliferated uh, and, and is fundamental to those uh, countries' movement of people uh, between cities or major cities and smaller communities, uh, it, it's, it, it works and it works well. Um, with, with Joe Biden being if you will, and I say this respectfully, President Amtrak. You know, he is uh, someone who commuted. <laughs> he certainly is a fan of the trains, right. he, isn't he? he yeah. you know, uh, uh, other than my grandfather, who is afraid to fly, uh, I never have met anyone who is as big a fan of, of rail as, as uh, uh, President-elect Biden appears to be. I think this will be very, very good for Amtrak. Um, uh, at least it has the potential to be very, very good. However, it's obviously very complex in terms of getting the land you need to build the rail and so on. Um, So there are a lot of lofty ambitions and and good ideas that get met with the hard reality of reality in terms of execution. Um, You know, and and to your point also, Kara, while some people I think will travel less frequently, but perhaps stay away longer when they travel, as Elizabeth has suggested, if you are a two-income household where uh, both parents work, uh, which is common, uh, and mm-hmm. only you know, and one has only a limited number of days off or vacation time, that's going to be the critical factor uh, in terms of of how often you can travel and when you can travel and. Uh, how long you can be away, and so on. So I think we are going to see this evolve. It would be really nice if perhaps as part of its policy making, would the Biden administration try to push for guaranteed vacation time? Um, do But what I don't know, and I'm not a policy analyst, is that something people want? Or would they be more concerned in terms of pushing their employers for more uh, health care, better health care support, mm-hmm. better financial support for health care or other things that they would uh, prefer to time off. 
And so we, unfortunately, we don't have a clear insight into this. But we know from various research studies, research that, that I've done, research that other travel companies have done, we leave a lot of vacation time on the table every year, more than a week, according to surveys uh, that I've seen published by Expedia. Our research shows uh, it's about 8.5 days of, of unused vacation time per person who has vacation time allocated as part of their job. So we're leaving a week of that time uh, untaken for whatever the reasons are. In many cases, it's not because the people who leave it on the table can't afford to travel or don't want to travel. It's driven by their jobs, their careers, their fears that if they take that time, they're seen as slackers. They're not per perceived to be as focused on their jobs and they're afraid of getting uh, left behind when it comes time for promotion. Right. Let me follow up with you, Henry, on what I had asked Elizabeth, because every time I start trying to get into this question, my brain kind of explodes. But the question of um, of when borders get opened, let's say you're, you know, want to go for a vacation in Toronto or you want to go to Paris or you want to go to Tokyo or whatever. How do those borders get opened? Maybe it's vaccinations, but, you know, if you've got a kid or two and you're bringing them with you, well, I don't think we're even close to kids getting vaccinated. So does that mean you, you're just that family's not going anywhere like they're not going to take you? I mean, like, it's just so complicated. It, it is complicated. Uh, and, and what I believe we need, what we first what we need is a safe travel protocol that is worldwide that governments can agree on that categorizes countries based on their public health landscape. And whether you want to do green, yellow, orange, red, purple, whatever, or numbers or whatever it is, uh, number of stars, uh, that's up to whoever would put this together. We're going to live in the near term, near term being the next year to perhaps two, in a world where uh, uh, you will have some people who are vaccinated and some who are not. Those who are not vaccinated may be required to uh, be tested for COVID within a certain amount of time prior to taking their trip and uh, a certain amount of time after arrival, maybe uh, it's just one or the other, we'll see. But to your point where perhaps some members of a family are eligible to be vaccinated, others are not, yeah. or some have right. been, others have not, for whatever the reasons, um, you're going to need a belt and suspenders approach. So that may mean proof that you either have been vaccinated or have tested COVID negative within a reasonable amount of time prior to your flight, prior to checking into a hotel or resort or taking a train or a ferry or whatever it may be. Um, even the Airbnb or VRBO uh, host that you meet with may want to be sure you are COVID negative. Um, and so that is just going to be the world that we will have to learn to accept. I think we'll be wearing masks on airplanes and at hotels and other places in public longer than we think. Um, uh, and the fact that fashion designers are now making face masks and you are seeing people selling bejeweled face masks for more than $100,000 shows that we have begun to at least accept this in a very peculiar way, uh, but in a very real way. And um, 
uh, it is just part of this new societal landscape that we have to uh, live with for now. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. All right, we're going to take our last break here. We're going to come back for our final few minutes with travel experts Henry Hartefeld and Elizabeth Becker. When we return, a look at the future of business travel, as well as how much, if at all, travel experts are traveling and what they are looking for in terms of safety. We're going to have more about the environmental dimensions of travel, which we discussed. That's on our website, innovationhub.org. We'll have more on Key West Florida's vote on cruise ships and how countries are faring that have kept tourism open because the economic impacts of preventing visitors would have been catastrophic. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Be right back. Once I get you up there, I'll be holding you. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the 1970s, a technology came into widespread use that threatened to ruin the travel industry. And it came on top of another technology, which had become popular in the 1920s, that had also threatened to snatch away travel. By 1990, United Airlines was worried. I got a phone call this morning from one of our oldest customers. He fired us. After 20 years, he fired us. Said he didn't know us anymore. Because of all this newfangled tech, United thought, people were just not traveling the way that they once had. So they cooked up an ad about businessmen who had been fired by their client because they never went to see the client in person anymore. We used to do business with a handshake, face-to-face. Now it's a phone call and a fax. Get back to you later with another fax, probably. That's right. The phone and the fax machine. They were the pieces of technology that had changed everything. So who needed business travel anymore? Well, United argued, business travel was still crucial. Something's got to change. That's why we're going to set out for a little face-to-face chat with every customer we have. But Ben, that's got to be over 200 cities. I don't care. 1990, of course, was not exactly the death knell for business travel. But now, we wonder... If the telephone and the fax didn't quite realign the world, could Zoom? Well, the research that we have done with our panel of travel buyers, these are corporate travel managers and other decision makers, and we've got more than 100 in the panel, uh, and we usually hear from between 75 and 80 when we survey them each month. Uh, Of them, right now, 93% expect that their travel activity, their travel spending will return to pre-COVID levels. That's travel industry analyst Henry Hardeveld, the president of Atmosphere Research Group. And you heard right. 93% of folks in the business of business travel think their company spending is headed right back to where it was. So Zoom may take its place alongside the telephone and the fax machine as technologies that couldn't end face-to-face meetings. But, and here's the big asterisk, 
they don't expect their business travel to return to 100% for several years. It's going to be somewhere between, at this point, somewhere between 2023 and 2024 when we see business travel return to uh, 100%. The travel companies that we survey, the airlines, the rental cars, hotels, uh, travel agencies, and other uh, travel suppliers say that they're right now anticipating slightly more than a three-year horizon from when vaccines become widely available for them to get back to pre-COVID levels of, of volume and sales. And then, of course, says Hardeveld, there are all sorts of wild cards that could throw another wrench into our willingness to go anywhere. It's subject to factors such as the economy and, of course, the state of this virus. What happens if it mutates and these vaccines are not capable of fighting whatever the next COVID is, or they work well on COVID-19, but we find ourselves with COVID-21 or something like that. Indeed, the entire travel industry, from business conventions to cruise ships, has been largely put on hold, waiting to see what's next. Will millions of jobs come back? Well, that's only going to happen if travelers feel comfortable. And if those travelers do return, says travel writer Elizabeth Becker, there's that pesky question of where in the world they're going to go. A lot of countries don't believe in global anything. And um, our country pulled out of WHO, the World Health Organization. Other countries have said, I don't care what WHO says, we're, we're keeping our border closed, period. Becker is a former correspondent for The New York Times, and she's the author of Overbooked. She argues there's a certain chaos that now seems inherent in travel. A friend of mine who's British had um, booked a flight to go to Cambodia. As he's going, Britain's status changes. So when he gets to Frankfurt to do the transfer, he has to have another COVID test in the city, running over to Amsterdam, da-da-da-da-da-da. It's as he is traveling, everything changes. And I think that's now, but I think it's going to be for a while. And underneath what's happening with COVID, there's been other problems brewing in tourism for years. Problems in particular with the weather. During the pandemic here in the United States, we had the wildfires in California. My goodness, Henry was there for all that. And um, we had the hurricanes in his wonderful New Orleans. Uh, we're, we're seeing all this is having a huge impact. I don't have any idea. No one does exactly where the next uh, weather event is going to be. But each time it happens, uh, one of the tropical effects is the effect on tourism. And um, in that sense, a lot of um, scientific experts are saying the pandemic is part of this, part of this globalization, and that we have to examine all of this as, as um, the world comes back together because we're still in the, um, in, the, you know, in the throes of climate emergency. Henry Hardeveld argues that the data shows demand is out there, both for personal travel and then over the next couple of years for ramped up business travel. But there are parts of the industry where the issues are going to be so complex, it's hard to imagine how they'll get back on their feet. Take, for example, cruise ships, which have long wrestled with underlying issues. 
The cruise industry pre-COVID had come under a lot of pressure for horrible environmental practices, and mm-hmm. they'd started to make changes or had made some changes, so I give them credit for that. But there are going to be a lot of people who are going to say, you know, there were problems pre-pandemic with taking a cruise, norovirus, for example, where it's, it, it seemed barely a month went by without some news story of a terrible outbreak of norovirus or something else making many people ill on a cruise ship. So I'm, uh, I'm questioning whether consumers will feel more comfortable taking these mega uh, cruise ships, these cruise ships that can hold 5,000 or more passengers, um, whether they would prefer to shift towards a smaller size ship whether they'd want to take the three-day uh, ship sailings from, for example, out of Florida ports over to the Bahamas or to the point Elizabeth made, would they prefer to be on a longer cruise if it's affordable, but a cruise that perhaps spends more time in their destination so they're not forced to stay on the ship as much and they can do more things in their destination uh, when they are there? Um, I think the cruise industry is one that that right now may face some of the strongest challenges and greatest resistance from consumers as they begin to uh, return to business. And unfortunately, um, right now, we don't know when that will even be because there is no clear-cut date set for when they will be allowed to start sailing again out of U.S. ports. For for both of you, when or what would make you feel safe traveling if, if you haven't been traveling? Uh, okay, I'll go first. Um, <laughs> I'm of the age that I'm in. Um, I, I have to be careful. And I, um, my husband and I have been extremely careful. We drive, we only drive places. Uh, we rent from very um, careful, carefully chosen VRBO to go up to Vermont from Washington, D.C. this year. And if you've been following the news, of course, Vermont has the best record for um, COVID. Mm-hmm. And um, so th- that's traveling, but of course it's not traveling. And um, we miss our, our children and grandchildren and um, we're being very careful. What will, what, what will make me travel? I've, I'm a fan of Dr. Fauci. If he tells me I can take that vaccine, I'll take it. And if um, my passport is recognized in a country where I want to visit, I'll travel. I'll make sure I pick the best airline. Okay. So you're waiting for the vaccination and then, and then you're yep. in. Yep. yep. Okay. Yep. And Henry, how about you? Uh, well, uh, I traveled for uh, Thanksgiving. Um, it was the first trip I'd taken since June by air. Uh, and the trip in June was the first trip I'd uh, taken since March 6th. So I've been very, very careful and very uh, res- limited in the traveling that I uh, uh, have done. Um, the June trip was a day trip down to Los Angeles and back. Uh, the trip uh, this uh, past week, we flew nonstop from San Francisco to New York and back. Um, w- you know, we were very careful. And by the way, so were all the passengers around us. There were you know, people in the airports were wearing masks. I was going to ask how it seemed to you. It seemed, I mean, certainly it was a lot uh, less crowded than past Thanksgivings. Um, and uh, but but people were uh, all very mindful of one another without being told to keep your distance. They were naturally, for example, in gate areas sitting apart from one another. 
uh, the flights were at best 50% full. Uh, so it was easy to have empty middle seats. You could, in some uh, the flight back from San Francisco, there were empty rows uh, uh, available. So, you know, people were being very mindful. Everybody was wearing their masks. No one, uh, 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 no one was not wearing their masks. People didn't walk up and down the aisles of the airplane needlessly. Um, we felt very, very uh, good about all of that. Uh, uh, and so, um, you know, I would only travel if I had a very, very, you know, real reason to do so. And uh, I don't expect to travel at this point anytime soon. Uh, but as Elizabeth said, once we're able to travel, once it's deemed safe, um, yes, uh, uh, you know, all of my business meetings um, have been done remotely since March. Uh, and and uh, I anticipate that, that that will likely remain the case uh, at least for the first three to four months into the new year. Hmm. Henry Hartveld is a travel industry analyst. He's the president of Atmosphere Research Group. And Elizabeth Becker is a journalist, former international economics correspondent at The New York Times and the author of Overbooked, The Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. Thanks so much to both of you for being here. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate being included. On the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. Life I love is making music with my friends. And I can't wait to get on the road again. And we want to hear your stories of the travel that you've missed or maybe the travel that you've done. What have you seen when you've been on the road? Or will there be a moment when you know, yes, now I can get back out there? We are on Facebook. You can also email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Caitlin Falds. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. The life I love is making music with my friends.